as I said, I am from Hamilton, and I have been in the program for a good many years. And when I arrived here this morning, I couldn't help thinking when I was here for my very first conference in 1976. And it was a real experience for me. At the time, I had six children then. I still have six children. <laughs> I have a grandchild, too, which is something. I've extended it a bit. Um, but I can remember coming to that conference, and uh, I think it took me two weeks to prepare for coming away. It was my first time away from the children, and I was so frightened to, to leave the children at home with my husband. And uh, I can remember somebody saying, just remember, they're not yours. They're God's. They're your higher powers, children. He will look after them. He or she will look after them get that straight and you know just that that bit of encouragement was just the beginning of uh, of my getting out even more so to meetings and to stop this type of control that I had always always experienced all my life and certainly when I married I did not know that I was getting into uh, an alcoholic marriage and for about 13 years, I never admitted really to myself that there was anything really wrong. I knew something was wrong, but I wasn't quite sure. But when things really started to get very, very bad, and we had, my husband and I had had about a year of therapy up at Shadok Hospital in Hamilton, and that was about the first year that they had started with their uh, alcoholic program. And after a year, my husband started drinking again. And they turned to me and they said, well, what's wrong? There's something wrong in the marriage. Well, I just saw red and I stormed out of there. And I can remember that feeling of absolute hopelessness. And like I said, I had six young children and uh, one just a baby at the time really and the feeling I shall never ever forget and the newcomer who comes in my heart goes out to you and if there's anybody out there we all know how you feel and all we can encourage you to do is to keep coming back to work this program but to get back to that feeling of hopelessness I can remember reading good old Ann Landers, and this is how I found out about Al-Anon. And it was through a telephone contact that I went to my first meeting, and it's still the same meeting that I go to in Hamilton. And it was there that I found that I was not alone, and it was there that I discovered that I was a pretty, pretty sick girl. I didn't want to believe that. but. What I heard at my first meeting, when I heard those steps, I thought, I'm home. This is really my home. This is where I belong. And I feel very honored to be here to, to be chairing uh, this meeting and especially a workshop on the 12 steps. Because it's the 12 steps, by putting them into practice, by working them, and I have been guaranteed, it's promised in the big book that if we put these steps into action, that we will get results. I feel I have had results in my life. I didn't have the success story that many people have uh, as far as um, sobriety being found in the home. My husband passed away last year without reaching sobriety, but our family reached sobriety, and that was the main thing. I found peace and contentment, whether the alcoholic was drinking or not. And this is what is so beautiful about this program. So briefly, that is my qualification, and I'd, I'd like to start this meeting by introducing Blanche, 
and she is from Texas. I just met Blanche this morning. I'm not sure whether it's the same Blanche I heard many years ago, uh, and if it is, I'll soon find out when I hear her talk about the steps. So I would just like to welcome her, and, uh, and I hope all of you will participate in, um, in this workshop. If there are any questions, concerns, uh, I'm sure we'll be able to, uh, to help you. And uh, just participate, because that's what a workshop is all about. Thank you. Blanche? I don't think you realize how dignified you all are. <laughs> I love it. I mean, that's a compliment, not a criticism. Jesse, I keep staring at you because I had a wonderful weekend in Sudbury some years ago. And I, <laughs> I was going to say, I don't meet many people from there. <laughs> My name is Blanche, and I'm a member of a worldwide fellowship called Al-Anon High. Hi. I've been a member of Al-Anon since July 7th, 1964. And tonight I will tell you more about my life than you're probably interested in knowing, so I'm not going to do that this morning. I will tell you that for 22 years I was a high school English teacher, and it isn't because I taught English that I loved the language. I loved the language, therefore I loved teaching English. And when, uh, when I say love it, I mean I love the beauty and I love the precision and so to me, the word workshop means just that. It's not a speaker, per se, and it's not a meeting, per se. It's where we do a little work. And I'm going to talk a while, and then I'm going to ask some of you to talk a little while. And I hope, meanwhile, you are thinking and feeling through these steps as I touch briefly on them. Please remember that what I say is my experience, and there are a lot of ways to do it right. I'm certainly not um, speaking for Al-Anon. We don't any do that. I'm telling you, here's how it worked for me. That's all I'm qualified, you know, to share with you. And if you disagree, that's fine. I was married for 30 years and reared two kids and have worked with several thousand teenagers through the years I have been disagreed with. I will not... <laughs> I will not crash and burn if you disagree with me. I was surprised to learn when I finally sort of came to in Al-Anon that it was more than a support group, that it offered a means of recovery. It was a long time before I thought I needed to recover from anything. And when I began to hear the steps, they were taught to me like this. I was told the first three were surrender steps, and it sounded like a contradiction in terms to me that we win by surrender. I had a lot of phrases in Al-Anon that contradicted themselves in my way of thinking. And once I was able to verbalize that to my sponsor, she could always resolve the conflict. But when by surrender was one of them. I was taught that steps four through nine would clear away the wreckage of the past, and I informed everyone who would listen, icily, that there was no wreckage in my past, thank you. <laughs> they could ask anybody. And instead of arguing with me, these people, these wonderful people said, uh, all right, steps four through nine will heal your memories. Can you buy that? And I could buy that. And they certainly did. And I was told the last three steps were maintenance steps, not in the sense of staying where you are, but in the sense of now while you continue recovery, don't lose any of this. It's more than just treading water, you know, and keeping your head above water. I mentioned teaching for so many years. I had a student one time, I was going to be absent. I've had several kinds of arthritis since childhood. I was going to have a knee worked on. And I always felt obliged to tell the students where I was so they wouldn't think I was just playing hooky. <laughs> I'm cursed with explaining. Do you have that problem? <laughs> when I go, I keep candy in my office now for my students. I personally cannot eat chocolate. So therefore, I can resist it, and so I can keep it in my office. And when I load up on tons of candy for my students, I explain to the girl at the checkout counter that it's not for me. Now, you, 
You know how much she cares, don't you? Some are sicker than others. Well, anyway, I was explaining to my classes why I wouldn't be there and threatening them with the wrath of God if they misbehaved for the substitute. And in one of the classes, when I told them I was going to have my knee worked on, one of the boys said, you know, once you pass 40, it's just a matter of maintenance, isn't it? (laughs) Well, I'm here to tell you that once you pass 60, it certainly is a matter of maintenance. (laughs) And this has helped me. I don't mean we have to label them or categorize them, but it it has helped me to think of them in this way. Would you close that in? I believe that it's very important to get help on all the steps. I'm very, very strong on sponsorship. Sometimes they let me do workshops on that. I think uh, this is a marvelous spiritual adventure. And to undertake it all alone and unguided and undirected is a form of arrogance that I don't understand. I, uh, I believe you'd have, we have help with more than just the fifth step. I did all of these with my sponsor, and um, if I sponsor people, and I do sponsor a few lucky people, that uh, <laughs> we do these together. That has been my experience, okay? I believe we have to do the do's before we can have the haves. And um, I was taught, well, let me back up. As, <laughs> as Nancy and Rick can tell you, I do not wake up wide-eyed and alert, much less spiritual. But I know people who do. I have gone on trips, you know, service work with Al-Anon who wake up spiritual. And it's just incredible to me. I was telling them I don't believe in God till 10 o'clock, and we have a, a ways to go here. So my sponsor suggested that since I uh, am not at my best at that hour, maybe my 11th step time should come some other part of the day. And she said, however, it's a good idea to take the first three steps before your feet hit the floor in the morning. And I have not done anything else perfectly in this program, but I've done that. Um, Sometimes I use our Alateen version in Texas. They say, I can't, he can, I guess I'll let him. (laughs) One time when I spoke at an Alateen convention, they gave me a T-shirt with those three phrases on there. I cherish it. And so I manage that before I start my day. (laughs) I was a little foggy this morning, but I think I did that. First step, admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. I think for those of us who are not alcoholic, this, uh, this step has a special and different meaning. It's very difficult for us to admit powerlessness. Most of us felt if I were prettier, if I were taller if I were smarter if I were whatever he wouldn't drink and um, we assumed a tremendous lot of power to assume that it was up to us but I have a theory about that totally unsubstantiated we would rather feel guilty than helpless do you understand that for a long time I felt guilty if there were earthquakes in Peru you know Uh, The assassination of public figures, whatever, I could just really feel guilty about it. And it took some time for me to accept that I really wasn't that powerful. But if I admitted that I didn't cause the drinking, then I had to admit that I was helpless about it. And I didn't want to do that. I think we get here kind of a combination of dictator and doormat. I was used to managing it was hard for me to accept unmanageability. Do you need to make them up? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. This happens. Okay, there's a little announcements. There are 14 additional tickets for the banquet. If you want a ticket, we suggest buying your ticket from the registration table as soon as possible. Thank you. I thought when I relinquished power that I would truly be helpless. This is another contradiction in terms. I had a sponsor who explained to me, no, in step one, we admit we're not the source of the power. But in step two, we are given a source of power. 
It's just a, a switch of where the power comes from. And that powerless does not mean helpless. We are not powerless to hurt, unfortunately. And fortunately, we are not powerless to help. What we're powerless to do is change people, you know, places and things. I don't think there's any such thing as constructive criticism. At least it never constructed anything at my house. I don't like it. I used to tell my students, if you're going to criticize me, do it behind my back. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I feel that criticizing is sort of like shining a bright light into someone's face, and then he can't see anything. I do believe it's possible to accept the truth and love from someone who cares about us, and I can do that. But I finally had to accept that I couldn't change another person. My sponsor taught me, and I do believe it, that any time I'm miserable, I'm not working step one. I am trying, at least mentally, to change you. To think, why doesn't he, or I wish she would. And when I catch myself being miserable, this is why. I want to change it, and I am powerless to do that. I was taught, and perhaps you have been too, in this program, that if we have trouble with any step, we haven't completely done the one before it. And sometimes when I hit snags, I've had to go back and redo the one before it. But assuming that we have managed step one, we go on to step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I said I like precision in speech. The word sanity bothered me. I was uh, not remotely insane, thank you. I, <laughs> I really had trouble with that. And here again, no one argued with me. Uh, no one tried to change my mind. What they said was, can you uh, use the Alatine version, restores to right thinking. And that was all right, but what I really could do, because I know something about words, I know that the word sanity comes from the Latin word sanus, which means whole. Sanitary comes from the same root. And I could accept that I had been shattered and fragmented and that I needed to be made whole. And now I don't have any trouble with sanity when I remember my behavior. This is such a common approach to step two. I'm sure you've heard it, but let me go over it quickly. That there was a sort of a three-stage approach. Came with the biggest hurdle for many of us. I mean, I wanted help, but I thought God was showing very poor taste. This was not at all what I had in mind. I had a great many reasons for reluctance, which I don't have time to go into. But finally, we do have to come, and then we can come too. If um, we get here as spiritually asleep as I was, we become awake and alive. And it's painful. It's sort of like having something that's been frozen, you know, get the feeling back into it. But after we come, and after we come too, we come to believe. Now, there was never a time when I didn't believe in God, but I have changed my view of him her <laughs> in these years in the program and I hope that continues I hope I get a deeper understanding as the years go by I think step two is a trust step and I would like to tell you there's a difference in the two words belief and trust the best example I can use without naming names is that I have no trouble believing that certain people hold political offices in the United States I believe that they're I believe they have tremendous power, but I don't trust them. <laughs> and I think so often that is our attitude toward God. We have no trouble believing he's there or believing that he's powerful. But trusting is another thing entirely. The story told to me to illustrate this was the man who pushed a wheelbarrow across a tightrope over Niagara Falls. And everyone gathered around to cheer and encourage and say, we know you can do it. You know, go for it. And so he did. And when he came back, they were just ecstatic and exclaimed and applauded and cheered again. And he said, do you think I can do it twice? And they said, oh, yes, yes. And he said, would you get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> they believed in him, but there was no trust there. <laughs> and belief has never been hard for me. Trust is often very difficult for me. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. I was accustomed to making decisions. I had been telling this man to whom I was married, you know, what to do, what to wear, breathe in, breathe out. 
and anyone else who would put up with it for years. So making decisions. I think the hardest thing for me was not turning my life over because that implies protection and guidance. It was turning my will over. Actually accepting the fact that God might possibly know better what was good for you or my children or whoever than I did. That was hard. I look at it now and I see what a freedom we are given here. Because I do not want the responsibility of deciding what's good for you anymore. There was a time when I could have told you and did, if you slowed down long enough, God's will for your life. I have been freed from having to do that. There are people in our fellowship, at least in Texas, who uh, think that all we're allowed to pray for is his will. We mentioned this again in step 11. But it has been for me a case of wanting his will more than I want anything I pray for. Does that make sense to you? Of I feel free to, in surrendering to his will, to ask that it override anything else that I pray for. I believe this is the prayer of relinquishment. In this prayer, we take our hands off. Um, I have had to be willing to give up everything in my life. I have not had to give up everything in my life. I have just had to be willing to at some point or another, much like the story of Abraham and Isaac in the scriptures. This is the case of total surrender, and that's hard for me. I tend to surrender reluctantly and uh, with an attitude of, let me know your will for my life, God, and I will give it my serious consideration. (laughs) That is not surrender. What I tend to do is knuckle under. Well, all right, you're bigger than I am, so okay, what can I tell And that isn't surrender either. My sponsor kept saying surrender is joyous acceptance of God's will. I believe that this step puts God in the center of our lives, and if we do this step and mean it, at least in my life, he has thoroughly and systematically removed anything else I have put in the center. Some wonderful people, some great jobs and places. I'm not allowed to have another center of my life because I asked him to be. And he believed me and took me at my word. I'm very grateful that we are allowed God as we understand him, not strained through any denomination or filtered through any particular creed or book. This gives us a great deal of freedom and latitude that I appreciate. The fourth step says, made us a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. I told you that these steps were taught to me as Healing the memories. But still, I put this one off. I think we often do in Al-Anon because it's not life or death for us. We won't get drunk if we don't do it. We will get sicker, but we don't know that for a long time. You know, by now we've gained some relief, and further insight will be painful. But self-knowledge is not self-condemnation. And that came as a nice surprise for me. It is not shattering We will not see more than we can handle. My approach to any problem, even today, I don't recommend it. I just tell you this is what I do. I tend to read 10 or 12 books on the subject. (laughs) I write about it extensively in my journal. I talk to people whose opinion I value, and nothing changes. I get lots of interesting information, but nothing changes until there is some action. But in all that reading, I found out that if a person goes for psychoanalysis, the therapist does not point out the problem until the patient sees the problem and tells him. And I think that's probably pretty much what happens with us and God. I think that he lets us see it when we can handle it. And we won't see more than we can handle. We have built-in blind spots that protect us. That's why I think we're told to continue inventorying because we don't see it all the first time. The searching implies that we have to dig for this, and there are several methods of doing it. Uh, long before our own Al-Anon 12 and 12 was written, I had been taught by my sponsors, and I, you know, we tend to sponsor the way we were sponsored. Have you noticed that? <laughs> sort of going along with the way you were brought up. But I was told to write a life story, and that is one of the ways suggested in our 12 and 12 now. But then we didn't have any direction or guidance on doing this, not from Al-Anon literature. But I was told there were reasons for this. One was that I can see patterns of behavior 
if I look back over my whole life, such as one of my patterns is to read and write and talk rather than do. But I think perhaps even more important than seeing the patterns is the fact that I thought all of my defects of character came about as a result of living with an alcoholic. And writing an outline, really, of, of my life, not a detailed dissertation, I found out that I had had all these defects all my life. I brought them into my marriage. Uh, they uh, would have made me sick in any instance, would have caused me trouble in any marriage. I'll give you a, I'm not going to do a fifth step with you, it would bore you to death for one thing, but let me briefly tell you an example of that. I have a great deal of pride. I like to think that was good. That was self-respect. It isn't. It can become spite. But when I was in the second grade, I had a very, very alcoholic father. And we were desperately poor. This was during the Depression. And I had sensitive and caring teachers who recommended that I get a free lunch. And poor or not, I had been brought up in the tradition of the Deep South in the United States that you don't take charity from anybody. And for two weeks I struggled between pride and hunger. Hunger will win out, let me tell you, every time. Which is why some of the governments we have in the world today exist. You know, people will put up with anything if they're hungry. And they get promise of being fed. But I can remember trying to swallow that food past the lump in my throat. I remember that so clearly. Now, I can't say that this pride developed as a result of, you know, living with an alcoholic, nor did any of the other defects. I brought them into the marriage, and I needed to see that. If you do it in the form of looking at your whole life, it removes the whipping boy, you know, the scapegoat. For years, everything had been blamed on the alcoholic, and you took my, my whipping boy away from me. I'm sure you have heard that Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. There's an American poet, Phyllis McGinley, who says the unlived life is not worth examining. <laughs> That's pretty much how I felt about mine at that point in time. <laughs> I, would, I would urge you to get help with this. I don't think we see ourselves as clearly. And I said I don't like criticism, but I can accept the truth in love. And I was able to say to people who care about me, do you see me as an angry person? Do you see me as, you know? And knowing that I wanted to know, they were all too willing to tell me. <laughs> it goes along with step five that says admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Self-knowledge alone isn't enough. I was 50 when I went to graduate school. That's another whole story. I knew I would be older than the other students. I wasn't prepared to be older than the professors. <laughs> and when you have this young bearded professor in blue jeans and sneakers, I learned you mustn't pat him on the knee and say, I think your mother must be so proud of you. <laughs> That's what I did. Anyway, I thought that I would get lots of answers to questions I had had all my life while I worked on a master's degree. I got a lot of answers, but not all of them. And what I have learned is this. A doctor who has finished medical school gets appendicitis. He knows where it hurts. He knows why it hurts. He knows what needs to be done. But the pain is still there. And this is true of emotional pain with the masters in psychology. I know why it hurts. I know where it hurts, and I know what needs to be done. But the pain is very real very genuine <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm into action more these days that's what it requires to ease the pain reading about the pain writing about it talking about it won't, won't ease it we have to do something we confess to ourselves for insight and I think even this takes a lot of courage sometimes for us to look at it ourselves we confess to God for forgiveness and he does and I believe that if I ask his forgiveness a thousand times he doesn't hear me the last 999. I think uh, he wonders what I'm talking about because I believe he forgets when he forgives. And we confess to other people for humility and healing. I don't go around quoting scripture, but our policy digest allows us to make brief references to other literature. And I will tell you that I grew up a Southern Baptist and we know scriptures. 
whatever else. We have them drilled into us from the time we are tiny. And the book of James, 5th chapter, 16th verse, I had learned as a child, confess your sins one to another. And I was in Al-Anon before I realized the rest of it says that you may be healed. And I don't know anything in my life today, past or present, that I wouldn't want you to know. And some of it I look pretty foolish. I have a marvelous faculty of making a complete fool of myself regularly. In fact, when I make talks, as I will tonight, I don't tell jokes. What I do is tell you the times I've fallen flat on my face, and that's the funniest thing that happens to me. And fortunately, I do it often enough that I never run out of material. (laughs) It's uh, very healing to know that there's nothing that other people don't know. Not everyone knows everything, but then they don't want to either. (laughs) It's not that exciting. I would suggest you choose carefully the person with whom you do a fifth step. I prefer someone in the program. I prefer someone who has done one himself, herself. Usually we do this with a sponsor. My sponsor would not hear my first two fifth steps. Um, She said, I love you too much. I don't see anything wrong with you. But she sent me to someone who certainly could. (laughs) I believe it has to be someone we trust. I mentioned believing so much in sponsorship. After 11 years, the sponsor I had moved far away, and I got another one. By that time, there was no one, thank you, in my group who would agree to sponsor me. Ordinarily, I think it should be someone at least, you know, within driving distance. But my sponsor lives in Dallas. At that time, she lived in Arkansas. It was a little hard to get together, but we talked a lot and we managed. And I've only had the two of them in 28 years. That's, a, that's another talk and another soapbox. But uh, I have done my other fifth step with the sponsor I have now. I would hesitate. Um, I know that a lot of people prefer a professional clergyman or something. I would still choose one if I were doing it who knows something about the 12 steps. I don't think we get a fair shake from someone who just listens and can't share with us in return. I have heard many, many, many fifth steps. There are people whom I do not sponsor who choose to come do one of this. I've learned several things from that. One is there is no original sin. It has been done. I don't care what you did. It has been done and done and done. And then I've learned a great deal about myself and my values from listening. I have listened to... uh, admission of embezzlement and incest and one accessory to murder and I didn't blink an eye but the woman who told me she cheated her way through school I thought I could not sit there I I thought I will attack her bodily and throw her out of my house tells you something about my values right Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Take some courage. This is the step that kept me from doing four and five for a very long time because I have defects that I enjoy. Uh, I believe that in, in, here again in the life story approach, we're more likely to get an overview of, and I, I don't really like the word defects, of areas that we wish God would remove. For instance, fear. I don't think fear is a defect of character, but I'd like him to remove it. And I, I go over these, this list of things I want him to remove, and I ask two questions. One is, what was the payoff here? Why did I hang on to this? And there was always a payoff. The defect developed out of something that was probably legitimate. For instance, um, loving beautiful things is fine, avarice and greed are not. It's, you know, one of those many fine lines that we try to walk in the program. Uh, Anger. I hung on to it because it was a means of controlling. And when I blew up, people walked on eggshells for a while after that. It was hard to give that one up. I had to know what the payoff was. Then I asked a second question. How has this become a problem to me? Because I won't ask God to remove it and mean it if it hasn't become a problem to me. That works very well. I recommend that. 
if you're interested in knowing why you developed it in the first place. It takes courage, of course, and courage costs more than caution, but it promises more in return. And you know, of course, that new life is always a threat, but it's also a promise. And the promises that have come true in my own life from that. I wish they didn't have the words entirely and all in this step, because I can become partly ready to have some of them removed. It's important to realize we are taught that God removes them and not us. And our literature urges us to uh, take note of our assets as well. Those are the uh, tools with which we can rebuild, with which we can handle the defects. If I listen to a fifth step, I jot down as, as we, um, this is what works for me. As we talk, the things I hear the person saying that I think he wants God to remove, and the many, many, many virtues and assets and strong points that I hear as he talks. And when we're through, I hand the list to him and I say, you can mark out any of the defects you want to, but you can't mark out any of the assets. So far, no one's marked out any of them. And I suggest they do what I just told you. Ask yourself, what was the payoff? Why did I hang on to this? It was a defense of some kind. And then, in what way has it become a problem to me? If I know that, I'll be willing to surrender it to God. You know, these defense mechanisms that we built up filled a lot of neurotic needs for us, and of course we miss them. But I have found that when I supply the willingness, God supplies the power. And he lets me have back the defect any time I reach for it. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. I, when I was World Service Delegate, I had a chance to talk to Lois Wilson one time. And when I talk to people of whom I am in awe and whom I respect, I like to pick their brains. I want to know what they know. And one of the things I asked her, I said, I have heard that some of the steps were written, Bill Wilson just used the word shortcoming as a synonym for defect. And she said, that's right. And I said, oh, all these years I have thought that it meant we came short. These are things we omitted doing. And she said, if that's what you need to believe, you, you use it that way. Uh, that's what I need to believe. Besides, it's not an exact synonym for defect, but hey. <laughs> I don't like the word sin, but these were sins of omission, if you will. Like most of you, I had not committed any red, raw social sins. But there were a lot of things that I failed to do, for I came short. And they caused just as much damage. I believe we are responsible for using words that mean what we say. Uh, I, back to students, see everything I've learned, I've learned from them nearly. If I said to them, what do you mean by using words responsibly? Almost always, these were 17-year-olds. And they would say, well, you use the right word in the right place. And I'll, they knew that. But if I kept probing, they would realize that, uh, I said, can you be responsible for what you didn't say? And a lot of them think, if you didn't do it, you're not responsible. <laughs> you know? And we would agree finally that we are also responsible for the apology not made. The sympathy not extended, the encouragement not given. If I believed in a literal hell, I would think there's a special place for the non-givers of the world. The people who could have spoken a kind word and didn't. I mean, these things don't cost anything. And I think I'm responsible for what I don't say as much as for what I do and for what I don't do that needed doing. I think humility is a sense of proportion it recognizes my creaturehood. My husband has, um, I've, I've only been married six months, and I usually say my friend, but I'm learning. That <laughs> he has a, used to have a poster in his kitchen, and it said there are two basic spiritual truths. One, there is the God. Two, you ain't him. <laughs> I, don't, I think humility is light years away from humiliation. Humility is what I feel when you stand when I enter the room. That's not humiliation at all. And I think it, uh, it, it keeps us in mind of who's in charge. I had to learn, for instance, the difference in gratitude and pride. 
someone who, who puts as much importance to words as I do, I've had to be re-educated in Alamon because we use some of them differently. Uh, thanks and gratitude. Thank you means I'm glad it happened. Gratitude means I want to give something in return. Those are not dictionary differences. But even I learned that the dictionary is not always right. I was having a friendly argument with a student about something one time, and in true English teacher fashion, I said, but the dictionary says, and he said, you can't always go by the dictionary. Well, <laughs> he would have thought he had spit on the flag. I was, I <laughs> he said, now the dictionary says that a dog is a four-legged canine animal. If you've ever had one, you know that's not a good definition. Well, I've had dogs and cats, and hamsters and birds and fish and whatever you have when you're rearing children. And I know that's not a good definition. So I'm not quite so stuck on dictionary definitions anymore. And uh, I had to learn from you the difference between pride and gratitude. I had attended an expensive university and paid for it myself. I had married the man I wanted, who was handsome and brilliant and could be charming. I had the children I wanted when I wanted them. I did work that I loved. And I took great pride in these achievements. <laughs> and I began to listen to my friends in AA talk about their sobriety, and not one of them ever said he was proud of it. He was grateful for it. He seemed to feel it was a gift, a grace, you know, unmerited favor. And I slowly recognized that all of these achievements in which I had taken pride were gifts for which I needed to feel gratitude. And now, for years now, if someone says something like, uh, my daughter, is a, you understand, is a brilliant <laughs> journalist, and uh, that's all right, Babs has a brilliant artist, and go, hey, captive audience, you're lucky I didn't bring home movies. <laughs> if someone says, I know you're very proud of her, I wince as if they had used an obscenity, and I hear myself saying, oh, I'm very grateful for her. Because, you know, I know where talent comes from and it wasn't her parents, you know. We got to move along. I can't tell you everything I know. You probably know it anyway. I made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. For a lot of people, steps four and five are the turning point. They're the milestones. For me, it was eight and nine. It was after eight and nine that nothing was ever the same again. It was... Because of them, I could look back and say, here's where it happened. I'm glad I didn't leave before the miracle, you know. We hear that so often. I'm glad I didn't quit before I got to eight and nine. I think a good inventory inevitably turns up in our minds, and I hope on paper, the people we have harmed. I had a sponsor who suggested that I start with God, and I thought there's no way I could harm him. She pointed out that the analogy throughout scriptures is that of parent and child. And the way I could be hurt most by my children would be if they cut me out of their lives. And I had certainly eliminated him from mine and all but lip service for a great many years. And then she said I should put myself second, that if anyone else had treated me the way I treated myself, I would have felt injured and hurt. And then my husband and my children, and that I went on from there. She had me fill out three columns on a piece of paper. This works for me. The person... What form did the injury take and what form should the amends take? Because different people require, I believe, a different form of amends. As I became willing to make the amends, God always provided the opportunity. I had uh, my stepfather on the list because I was a snippy and sassy adolescent and said some really ugly and vicious things to him. Never to my mother, but to him. He lived in Florida. I was in Texas. I thought it would be a while before I had to do anything about that. And he wrote and said he was coming for Christmas. <laughs> he had never come for Christmas. <laughs> and so I was able to talk to him about it when he was there. I'm glad that I w it was pointed out to me that making the amendments was my responsibility and your reaction was not. That brings us to nine may direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. A lot of people did not say, oh, that's all right, when I made amends. They said, you ought to be sorry, and they were not forgiving. And I was very grateful I had been told about that beforehand, 
that their reaction was not my problem. My responsibility was to do it. And some amends required leave only a verbal apology, explanation, <laughs> explanation. But there are cases, like with my children, I'll be the rest of my life making amends to them. It's a matter of a changed life, you know, changed behavior. And uh, I tried to fit the amends to the person and to what had been done. I grew up in Florida. It's hot and humid there, especially before air conditioning. I loved to cook, and I was being taught a lot by my mother. And I remember learning to make pie crust. I would roll it out, and it was like chewing gum. Oh, it was so hot and sticky, and it would stick to the rolling pin, and I had so much trouble with anger. And I would slam the rolling pin down, burst into tears, and she would say, Honey, roll it out again. Be thankful if you can do it over. She said, There will be many times in your life when you give anything on earth for the chance to do it over, and you won't have that chance. I'm sure she thought it went in one ear and out the other. But I have thought of it a thousand times since then. Step nine doesn't give us a chance to do it over exactly, but it gives us a chance to make it right, and that's the next best thing. I believe the, direct, the amends have to be direct. I can't say to you, will you tell Susie I'm sorry? <laughs> I think it has to be direct. I have had a lot of questions come up through the years about making amends to people who have died. It has worked for people I know to write a letter. I do that with my students at school. I'm a, I'm a counselor, and I have a, a number of young people who aren't in touch with one of their parents for some reason or another, divorce, death, whatever, abandonment. And I have them write letters, and they say, oh, I wish I could talk to him, you know. I say, let's do. It's very healing. I know some people who have gone to the grave site and talked to the person, and I think that's all right. I had a... I'm in the middle of taking hospice training. Do you know what that is? Fascinating. I do so much grief counseling. I thought maybe it would be good this summer for me to learn some more. And we were talking the other night at our class about children handling death and that it's easy to deny it. I had a 10-year-old once who couldn't accept his mother's death, and he would say to me, You know what my mother packed for lunch today? Or my mother ironed a shirt for me. And in an effort, you know, to keep these people gently in reality, I would have him write to his mother. Now, that isn't the case of making amends, but my point to you is it isn't impossible to feel the contact. I had a high school girl that came in and said, no, I mean, no preliminaries. My mother died two years ago. I still talk to her. My daddy says, I'm crazy. Am I crazy? I said, well, my mother died 20 years ago, and I still talk to her. I hope not. <laughs> And I said to her, does she talk back to you? And she said, of course not. She's dead. <laughs> I thought, this kid's all right. <laughs> but it is a very healing thing to feel that you have communicated in whatever way that works for you. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. But notice they say when and not if. <laughs> I think the steps are in the right order and need to be worked in order, but the last three can be worked at all along. The first year I ever taught school, I taught elementary school for three years, and after that high school and then college. This was a, a fifth grade in my hometown in Florida. The um, principal of that school had been there as principal 25 years and had taught there before that. If I mentioned a particular student to her, she would say, you know his daddy was the same way. And I knew when he married whoever that they'd likely have kids like this. <laughs> it was wonderful. But she's the one who taught me about evaluation. She said at the end of the day, take a few minutes and say to these young people, well, what did we do today that you liked? What did we do that you just assumed we not do again? And I learned a tremendous lot from them. When I switched to high school, I did it once a semester, and they wrote it. And I would tell them, anything I've done right so far, some students suggested, you know, in the past, so let me know. I would suggest that they be realistic, that suggestions like jump in the lake were not <laughs> realistic. And you could have that here, but in West Texas on the desert, that was a very unrealistic suggestion. <laughs> so I was not a stranger to evaluating. For a long time, we were able to say, well, I'm not sure how often we need to do this, but our one-day-at-a-time book says we do it daily. 
And I don't write it down every day. But I try hard, like taking the first three steps every morning, at the end of the day to say what went right, and to give myself gold stars for what I did well. That is so important. And otherwise I won't know what to keep on doing, you know. And if it worked, I want to remember it, and I want to remember why. And instead of feeling guilt now, I'm able usually to think that wasn't very productive. That didn't have the result I wanted. I think I won't try that again. Instead of I'm rotten and worthless and never do anything right, which is just not true, and it's not true of you either. As Bab said last night, there's never been a time when I didn't know deep down that I had worth and value of some kind. So I suggest an everyday inventory. That's what we're told to do. They also make it clear this is a personal one. I could do yours every day with no trouble at all. I used to think all of this introspection would make me self-centered. And it doesn't. Uh, it frees you. Self-knowledge gives you freedom from self. Sounds like a contradiction. I have found that it's like driving a car. I do not consciously listen to the motor every minute. But if it starts sounding strange, I hear it. At some level, I am aware of it. And so you won't turn into a moral hypochondriac with these steps. You won't wake up every morning and the way hypochondriacs think, where do I hurt? You won't wake up thinking, what's wrong with me? <laughs> I used to think that might be the result of this. No. But if the motor starts knocking, I believe you will hear it if you're aware of yourself. It's, um, it was never hard for me to admit I was wrong. My problem was taking responsibility that was inappropriate. You know, I told you I would apologize for strange happenings anywhere in the earth. I still tend to feel responsible. If you come to Austin, I live in the area of Austin in Texas, I will apologize for the weather. Do you do that? Tell me you do that. <laughs> yes. Well, I know people do because wherever I go, they feel responsible for the weather. That's inappropriate guilt, <laughs> though it really is. You don't have to apologize for that. <laughs> I still do it sometimes, but I know I don't have to. Thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. Praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. There, there have been, you know, whole meetings on this step and whole books written on it. Uh, I can only touch lightly on the fact that I believe this is hard spiritual work. It requires spiritual discipline. I pray very well, I think. I feel connected. I feel bonded. But I, I'm not very good at meditating. I can give you all the psychological reasons why, but I will spare you that. I will just say that my brain seems to keep going like a hamster, you know, in a cage. And it's very hard for me to turn it off. But that doesn't mean that I don't try. I have changed my prayer life somewhat. I have quit giving God instructions. I try just to report for duty instead. And we are given the tools for the digging. You know, salt implies that it's going to require some hunting. And we are given the tools, prayer and meditation. When this became real for me, it was a time when I was so busy I was frantic. Now, I tend to use busyness as a narcotic. When I don't want to think or feel, I will just really get busy. I do that even today, but today I know it. That's the only difference. I wish I could tell you I no longer do it. My husband had a sponsor from whom I learned as much as I did my own sponsor, a beautiful red-haired woman. And I was telling her, showing her my calendar, how busy. And she said, it looks to me as if you need to spend more time in prayer and meditation. And I said, you weren't listening. See, I don't have any time now. And she said two things that I've never forgotten. She said, I wish you wanted the giver as much as you do the gifts. And then she said, five minutes a day may be enough for contact, but it's not enough for growth. And so when I get frantically busy again, I try to spend more time in my 11th step work. And you know what happens? All the trivia falls away. All the non-essentials fall away. I, I can't tell you how magical that seems to me. And it has never failed. I had been taught the components of prayer before I got to Al-Anon. There's no rule about this. But I had been taught that one way to pray is to start with praise and thanksgiving, gratitude, go to confession, 
then intercession for others, and then petition. I have a little prayer notebook in which I write all these things down. And I don't change it often. I mean, I may add a name here and there. I have on my refrigerator door an intensive prayer list. <laughs> these are people who have called and said, would you put me on your refrigerator door? <laughs> Obviously, I see it more than once a day. And I do pray for these people then. We could talk endlessly about how do we know his will and how do we know when we are doing it. I uh, think it's important for me to remember that God guides me through giving me the desire to do it. I don't mean I'll like it, but I mean I'll want to. I can remember my husband Charles saying to this wonderful sponsor of his, if I turn my life and my will over to God, and if I pray for knowledge of his will, he'll send me to Africa as a missionary. And she said, if he does, he'll give you the desire to go. And then, you know, sometimes the light bulb goes on over the head, like in the comic strips. And I thought, wow, that's true. <laughs> now, here again, they may not be liking. My husband learned to fly, and we bought an airplane. Uh, I did not like flying with him, but I wanted to. When I was working on this master's degree and I had to do a thesis, my committee kept saying, in the margins, too literary, too emotional. I finally said to my advisor, you're lucky it's not in poetry form. I don't know how to write scientific documents. I got an A on the thesis that's the dullest thing you have ever seen in your life because they took all the pizzazz out of it. I did not like writing it, but I wanted to. Am I making sense to you? So I've learned to pay close attention to what I want in following the will of God. And I pray whether I feel like it or not. I don't wait for spiritual goose pimples. I believe it's like castrol. It works whether I believe it or not. So I go ahead through the motions, you know. And I believe I'm safe within his will. I think what he wants for me is infinitely more marvelous than anything I could think for myself. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry the message to alcoholics, to others. <laughs> I hear it so often because I'm at AA conventions more than I am Ellen and to practice these principles in all our affairs. The word others, you know, is the only change made in the steps when they were adapted for us. This spiritual awakening is promised as the result of these steps, not that we get it in any other way. Most of us don't have visions or blinding lights. We used to have, and when I lived in West Texas, we had meetings on what was your spiritual awakening? You know, what form did it take? It was interesting. Uh, mine was awareness. And that means that I'm aware of uh, grief and sadness more keenly, too. But I'm so much more aware of myself and what I'm doing and why, and uh, aware of the world about me. When we carry this message, there are a lot of ways to do it. We don't necessarily bang on someone's door and say, you need a program. I believe we carried the message by being in that chair there. You're saying to me this morning, this is important to me. And if you are, have been around a long time, you're saying, this is still important to me. That's the message that I need to hear. In Virginia, they refer to telephoning between meetings as aspirin Al-Anon. <laughs> and that's one way to carry the message. I do a lot of writing. Dad told everyone last night at dinner that I was born with a pen in my hand. No, but I type a lot, and uh, I like to write. I don't know what I feel until I write about it. Some of us are just geared that way. Practicing the principles, there are so many of the principles. And if we practice them in all our affairs, this presupposes that we will have a life outside of Al-Anon. I have a, an Al-Anon friend in Massachusetts who says Al-Anon is not my whole life, but it makes my life whole. And I do a great many other things. I hope you do too. If you have studied our blueprint for progress, they urge us to be active participants in our community. You know, alive and aware and alert citizens. Now, I can't forget where I got the program by which I live, but I have a lot of other activities. I grew up Southern Baptist, and we had a term. It said, if you're saved, you're saved to serve. And there's a lot we can do a lot of places. The hardest places to practice the principles is in my own group and at home. I bet it is for you, too. I uh, have had fairly new groups the last few years because I've moved around a lot. They remain singularly unimpressed with me. They are dedicated to keeping me humble. 
And the one I grew up in in West Texas knew that there were years when I could hardly find the door of the building, so they uh, are very tolerant of me. I have no patience with people who talk all over the country and have no home group and no sponsor.